Well, church, we are going through a passage, a part of Matthew, and we're going to end, close up Matthew 10 this week. And in Matthew 10, the Lord gives specific instructions to his apostles in verses 1 through 15. And then in 16 to 42, he gives some very pointed statements to those who would come after the apostles in the immediate future to his disciples, but also to us by way of application. But but he says some really hard things, but but the, the hard things are always undergirded by words of encouragement and grace. So for example, he says in Matthew 10, verse 16, he says, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And you see that happen in the book of Acts. Then he says this, don't be overly concerned because when you are brought before the authorities to speak, Even if you've never been known for your ability to be someone who's given to elocution, I will give you the words to say. So he says, I'm going to support you in this. And then he says, he says, brother will will deliver you over to brother, to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. In other words, there's going to be Problems, especially in the aftermath of the resurrection of Christ. And then he says this, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor is a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant to be like his master. If they called the head of the household Beelzebub, which means the prince of demons, referring to himself, what will they call those of the household. And it says, so, or therefore, have no fear of them. For whatever you is whispered in secret will be shouted from the housetops. In other words, your father knows what's going on. Your father is in control. He says he's so much in control that, that not a sparrow can fall from the ground without your father's knowledge. And you're incredibly more valuable than sparrows. In fact, even the hairs of your head are numbered. So rejoice in the Lord. And then he says this. We covered this two weeks ago. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And you say, well, these are spoken to a culture that prized and valued and upheld the family unit. And what Christ is saying is that the, 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 the lordship of Jesus must be supreme. And, what, and then he says, if you find your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. And what he's, I think what he's saying is that if you want to be the best son, the best father, the best brother, the best uncle possible, then seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But these are hard words. 
But then he closes this with these words about rewards. And I, I think he's given us a hint on how to have a long obedience in the same direction. How to continue leading into the wind when the wind is blowing against you. How to go on when your heart is broken or when the culture is against you or your contemporaries are mocking you. So these are very important words. So chapter 10, verse 40 to 42. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives him who receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So Jesus says, whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. And then he says this. He talks about three groups. Whoever receives a prophet will have a prophet's reward. Now, a prophet in the Old Testament was a person who spoke the literal word of God. So for our understanding, we can say whoever receives a well-known teacher who has lived by the stuff will receive a teacher's reward. Whoever received a, receives a godly man or a righteous man, someone known in their community for being a person of character, will receive a righteous man's reward. But I think really the crux of the passage is the last verse. It says this, whoever gives... Even one of these little ones, a cup of cold water because he is a disciple. Truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. He says if you give a, a cup of cold water, which is one of the most non-labor intensive issues, just a cup. If you give someone who's a little one, and he uses the word little ones in Matthew 18 to refer to children, but really little ones means people that are not necessarily highly esteemed in their culture, the marginalized. The, you know, anybody who gives a, a little one, even a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus will not lose his reward. So this morning I'm going to talk to you about rewards. Let me tell you what my thesis is before we get started or get very far. Our reward, when we understand rewards biblically, it gives you a long-term pursuit in obedience and difficult times. Number two, to understand rewards means it underscores the high calling we have as disciples of Christ and nobility of life. We say right now counts forever. And when you understand rewards, you are filled with joy and happiness of the prospect of heaven. So that's where I'm going. But let me start off by saying this. You always have to say this every, every day to myself. I need to get the gospel. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of the cross alone. If you became a believer sometime last week during the Easter celebration, um, and you're dealing with a lot of issues that have dogged your path for a long time, you are as loved by the Father because of the cross as someone that's been a believer for 50 years and they've been serving the Lord with a hearty, glorious, driven life. You're saved by faith alone, 
through grace alone, by the work of cross, cross alone. You could not be more loved than you are not right now because God sees you through the blood of the cross and the work of Jesus. So, boom, just alone, only, monergistically, solely, whatever word you want to use, get that. So, so there's a statement in the worship guide from a guy named Charles Hodge who taught at Princeton forever, a great teacher. And he, he says this, I'm just going to read part of it. He says, although Protestants deny the merit of good works and teach that salvation is only by grace, that the remission of sins and our adoption into the family of God and the gift of the Holy Spirit are granted to the believer as well as admission into heaven solely, hear that, so only on the ground of the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ, semicolon. They nevertheless teach that God does reward his people for their works. On down he says, he who gives to a disciple even a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple shall in no wise lose his reward. When I say rewards, I mean this. That we, we get in, we are saved by the grace of the cross, absolutely. But, but after we come to faith, the Lord desires for us to live in such a fashion that we glorify his name. And so we want to hear at the judgment well done, good and faithful servant. We are responsible stewards of the manifold grace of God. Saved by the cross only, but there is a judgment of rewards. I want to try to convince you of that and, and show you why that is important. But whenever you talk about that, you got to talk about extremes. Okay, so, so over here, you have legalism, and over here you have the libertines. So legalism says basically, I've got to work hard and labor and do this and do that to earn the love of God. I'm going to mention this next week, but next week, uh, next Sunday is the first day of Ramadan. It's the holy fast for our Muslim friends. And they do not eat or drink from sunup to sundown uh, to earn merit with Allah. Okay? We go, the cross obliterates that way of thinking. We are saved strictly by the grace of the cross. So if you're sitting there saying, I, I got to do this and do this and do this to earn the love of God, you've missed the gospel. So Paul addresses that, for example, in Romans chapter 5. He says in Romans 5, he says, therefore, we've been justified or declared righteous by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Paul says we're standing in it. We're not just existing. We stand in the grace of Jesus. So that's what he says. But then the other extreme are what we call the libertines. And they say, well, let me understand this, Paul. If we're saved by faith alone, through the work of Christ alone, we bring nothing to the table. That's right. We can't add to our salvation. That's right. We can't make God love us more. That's right. Conclusion, they would say, the libertines, then we throw any restraint to the wind. We live any way our impulsive nature drives us, and we 
fill in the blank. And Paul says, you don't get it. So in chapter 6, he answers the libertines. He says this, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Which is what they were saying. By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? He said, we receive the Holy Spirit. We've been baptized into Christ Jesus. So, and we're to live a new life because we are in Christ. The Holy Spirit teaches us to live a life that's honoring to the Lord. He says in chapter 8, he says, the mind that is set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but you are in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. In other words, if you have the Holy Spirit, you want to be pleasing to God. And if you want to be pleasing to God, you don't have the Holy Spirit. And if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a believer. It's very clear. So, so you live with this tension. And I'm going to show you where the tension kind of falls out. And I hope you leave very encouraged. Because I think Jesus is saying what he says in Matthew 10 to exhort and encourage those who will come after the apostles. And that would be us. Understand that those who give even a cup of cold water to one of the little ones will not lose his reward. I do not want to push you to despair. Understand the gospel of grace. I was reading an article a few weeks ago about millennials. Millennials are people basically aged uh, 17 to 34, 35. And this article says this. It says that uh, it talks about the millennials being a therapy generation. Here's the statement. In 2018, a study of 40,000 American, Canadian, and British college-aged students published in the journal Psychological Bulletin found that millennials are suffering from, quote, multi-dimensional perfectionism, close quote, in many areas of their lives where they set unrealistically high expectations and then feel hurt when they fall short. I have given up multi-dimensional perfectionism a long time ago. And, and there are some people here that, 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 that quite honestly, if you're honest, you say, yeah, I, I, I struggle with that. I've got doing more and more and doing that. And, and the gospel frees you to say, I'm broken, I'm in need of a savior. So I, I don't want you to, I don't want to ever push perfectionism because I think perfectionism is from the pit of hell and it smells like smoke and it stinks because the grace of the cross says, I love you. So, okay, so I'm going I'm to go through this. I'm going to read some verses, so I'm going to go through this pretty quickly. So just, just listen. Um, some people say, well, isn't, isn't gratitude enough, enough of a motivation? You know, the Bible says we've been bought with the price. Glorify God with your body. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 6. Um, Ephesians 2 talks about we're saved by grace. And then verse 10 says we're his workmanship creating Christ Jesus to do good works. I mean, we're, that's who we are. I said, yeah. So shouldn't gratitude be enough? And my response is gratitude is wonderful. It may be the prime motivation of Christian faith. I'm not going to argue with that. But I'm going to say, but the Bible says there are other motivational factors. And one motivational factor is God, at the judgment seat of Christ, will give us rewards for our faithfulness. That's what the Bible teaches. So I want to convince you of that and tell you why that's important. So um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, talk, talking about the hope of heaven. And, and Paul says this, 
2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 9. He says, uh, he says, says you, you people, uh, uh, 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 5. So, so whether we are at home in the body or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or bad. We'll appear before the judgment seat of Christ, believers. And then in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul is writing to the same church, a very dysfunctional church, by the way. The church of Corinth was just filled with issues. And he challenges them. He says, you know, he says, think about this. He says, verse 11, no one can lay any foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day, the day of judgment, will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test the sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. See, reward? If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but as only through the fire. So this is an incredible picture. Paul says there's this foundation. It's Christ. It's only Christ. Christ and crucified. Some people build on the foundation with gold, silver, and costly stones. Some with wood, hay, and straw. And then the day comes, and the day burns it up, and the people that have gold, silver, and costly stones walk through it. They're, 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 they're obvious. These people, they're believers but the house is crashing down around them and they escape as only through the flames. And I read this and I ask you, I ask myself, are you building on the foundation of Christ with faithfulness and grace and forgiveness and mercy and kind speech and a a desire to see people come to faith in Christ and and sacrificial living with gold, silver, costly stones or or, or just kind of phlegmatically living and building with wood, hay, and straw? And I, I read this and I just go, man... Do, do, I really, do I really get what Paul is saying here? Am I, am I building with gold, silver, and costly stones? And then Luke 14, verse 12, Jesus is telling a parable, and he says this. When you give a, a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when... You give a feast, invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Repaid at the resurrection of the just. In other words, love the marginalized. Love the people down on their luck. Love the people that need help. And you'll be repaid. I was studying this and I thought about some people that I really respect and care for. There's a, a group of people in our church involved in a ministry called Families Count. And I thought about the man who's heading that up. Families Count is a six or eight week course. People that are, have issues with their family and they're walking through some tough stuff. They are appointed by the court 
to come to this course and they're fed and we talk about parenting and they're, we do Bible studies, we give them Bibles and they're mentored and people pick them up and bring them here. It's, it's an amazing program. And I thought, this, is, this really gladdens the heart of God. And, and, and their reward, the people that do it, their reward is, is in servant. And yes, but, but, but God sees and God knows. Your life counts. I, I thought about another man in our church who heads up a ministry involving people in our church, and, and they do correspondence Bible training with hundreds of prisoners across the nation. Hundreds. I think up to eight, 800 prisoners. So we'll send out Bible studies and get it back, and they take tests, and they're graded, and, and they get certificates, and we give them the scriptures, and, 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 and this guy's here hours and hours and hours and hours every week, and he would be embarrassed to the ground if I even called out his name because he's doing it as unto the Lord, and he will be repaid. God, God sees. The Father sees. The Father knows. I have another friend who spends hours and hours and hours every week training athletes in a certain athletic event. I mean, for free. No pay. He just loves them. And he'd be embarrassed if I called his name. Because they do this as unto the Lord. Just a little caveat. We should, we have ministry to homeless, to people that are hungry. All these are wonderful programs. Here's my little statement, though. As we do this, we must have, understand we have the privilege of speaking the name of Jesus to them and the forgiveness of sins through the cross. It's wonderful to have programs, but we want to speak Christ into their lives. And there's a little statement from a confessional statement that we hold to, hold to called the Baptist Faith and Message, which says this, that more means and methods used for the improvement of society can be truly and permanently helpful. See, permanently, eternally helpful. Only when they are rooted in the regeneration of the individual by the saving grace of Christ. Regeneration is another word for the new birth. So we want to see people come into the kingdom to confess their sins, to come to faith in Christ. So I, I applaud these people. Reward. Matthew 6, Christ is very clear. He talks about spiritual disciplines. And he says this. He says, he says, when you give, don't stand on the street corner so that everyone can see you giving. But when you give, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. In other words, you know, when the plate's pass, we, you stand up and say, well, I want to give. You drop 100, 200. Everybody see? 300, 400, 500, 600. Everybody see that? You, you've lost your reward. Boom. It's gone. He, he says, and, and, and when you pray, don't stand on the street corner and hold up a sign saying, I am holy, I am praying. Aren't I a good guy? He said, if you do that, you've lost your reward. He says, when you pray, go into the inner closet in your home, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you when you fast. Don't disfigure your face and hold a microphone to your stomach when it's growling and say, 
look at me, I'm fasting. Jesus says, if you, if you do that, it's of no good. He says, but, but, says, but when, when you fast, anoint your head with oil and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do you hear that? So I was with my son a few weeks ago out on the West Coast. And he says to me, he asked me, he says, Dad, what are you going to do for Lent this year? No, Lent, L-E-N-T. I go, you know what I normally do? Nothing. He said, I'm a Baptist. So we, we, you know, we don't observe Lent. I think it's fine. I mean, it's not biblical, so I just have never done it. I said, why do you ask? He said, well, I decided to observe Lent this year. I went, really? He said, yeah. I went, whoa. I said, do you mind me asking what you're going to do? He said, oh, I can tell you. He said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go without sugar. I said, I said, qualify. If you go without sugar, that means no ice cream and no chocolate. And he said, yes. He says, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I said, hey, what, Zach? I'll give up cauliflower and Brussels sprouts, and I'll track with you. I appreciate his spirit. But see, if, if, if you just stand up and say, I'm, I've done this, you, you lose your reward. And then he talks about giving. And Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not break in and where thieves do not break in and steal. Treasures in heaven. See, it's, it's throughout the scripture. And I, I, I read this and I go, isn't it glorious that the Father sees and the Father knows? So let me give some statements. Number one. The concept of understanding that God rewards faithfulness and God rewards fortitude, nobility of living is that it gives you a long obedience in the same direction. You can lean into the wind. Christ is speaking to people here. He says, you're going to face persecution. You're going to have to lean into the wind. I thought about the African-American spiritual that was developed during the years of slavery. It's a wonderful song. It goes like this. Many of you know it. Nobody knows the troubles I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. Nobody knows the troubles I've seen. Glory, hallelujah. You say, well, glory, hallelujah. Where'd that come from? They say heaven awaits. That's what they mean, heaven awaits. Sometimes I'm up and sometimes I'm down. Oh, yes, Lord. Sometimes I'm almost on the ground. But nobody knows the troubles I've seen. And they, it says this, if you get to heaven before I do, oh, yes, Lord, tell all my friends I'm coming to. It's just the hope of heaven. Thank you for that heritage. God the Father sees and he rewards. In Psalm 56, David is a prisoner of war. A prisoner of war. And, and the Philistines have him, and they don't know what to do with him. And so he pins this incredible prayer psalm. He says, verse 1, be gracious to me, O God, for, for man tramples on me, and all day long an attacker oppresses me, and my enemies trample on me all day long. For many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. And God, whose word I praise, and God I trust, I shall not be afraid. And he says this on down. You have kept count of my tossings. 
You have put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, God is for me. Now you, you just, God knows your tossings. God knows your sighings. God metaphorically has put your tears in a bottle. One of the great joys of being a pastor is knowing people. There are people here and in the worship center that have walked through a deeper valley than many of us have any idea about, whether it is um, children that they've, they've lost or whether it's a child that they raised and the Lord just walked away and don't, don't, don't speak to them. Spouses who have just left and will not be reconciled. An illness that they've borne. And, and you think it's incredibly comforting that God has put our tears in a bottle. He sees our signs. He knows us and he's for us. And so when I, when I read that, it gives, me, it gives me a desire to go forward, to lean into the wind. I don't know where you are, but God is eternally kind and gracious and he loves his people by the cross. And, and he's the father who rewards us. Press into the wind. The second thing is this, is that, is that when, I, when I understand rewards and I understand that right now counts forever, that I'm going to give an answer for the way I've lived my life, it gives incredible weight to how I live. There is a high calling. There is a nobility to living when you understand the Father sees, the Father knows, that we're responsible to live before the Lord as a steward. To live with nobility or a virtuous, brave, generous, self less life. There's a man named Michael Novak. I've enjoyed reading him through the years. He died two years ago of, of colon cancer. He received uh, the Templeton Prize for Progress in Religion, which is a award given to people. It's a one million dollar gift that you can give to your foundation or whatever and wrote 40 books. Um, Templeton Award was won by Chuck Colson and Billy Graham and Alexander Solzhenitsyn and Mother Teresa and the Dalai Lama is just not strictly Christian. But he, he wrote this uh, about seven years ago. I'm going to read two paragraphs. I, I think it's really worthwhile. Listen to this. It's about nobility. I was thinking about nobility and read this and went, wow. He said, yeast in dough. That's the image our American ancestors saw when they thought about planting the germs of beauty and nobility in their new culture called America. Only one has to look at the original plan for the buildings and parks of Washington, D.C. to grasp how much attention our nation's founders pay to splendor and simplicity, to virtue and nobility and beauty. The founders' dream was to build a republic that would live long and prosper and inspire a noble spirit in its citizenry. The public buildings of the capital city as built solidify and lift up this dream. One more paragraph. A republic, he says, is not worth dying for just because it is prosperous. Not, as, not if his self-satisfied citizens live like pigs, his word. Nor is a republic worthy just because its citizens enjoy political freedom. Not if those citizens dissipate their freedom in decadence, promiscuousness, and self-centeredness. 
Indeed, no republic will last long that ceases to strive for nobility of spirit, virtue, and self-sacrifice. Put another way, tyranny begins within the mind and the soul. If in that mind and soul there's no moral difference between the truth and the lie, and no moral difference between deeds good in themselves and deeds evil in themselves, then what is the argument for preferring liberty to tyranny? Talks about the importance of nobility to spirit, of spirit. I, I used the word earlier, fortitude. Fortitude means courage, bravery. It means courage oftentimes in pain or adversity. He said, you know, why are we called to fortitude? Here's the answer. We're called to fortitude because we walk before the living God who is triune, who is in eternal love, died on the cross for our sin, and is our Abba Father. And we will give an account on the day of the resurrection. So there's fortitude. But if you, you can go on, on times and places and see where a word is used in a culture. The word fortitude was used way up here from 1800 to 1865 or so, and then it started going down and it just plunged, plunged, plunged. Now the word fortitude is rarely used. Listen, the word nobility is rarely used because you do not value the words you don't use. And I'm saying that nobility of spirit is birthed by the child of God as he understands we're gifted and we're called and we will answer to the living God. Uh, nobility of spirit. I was asking, where do you, where do you find nobility of spirit? Uh, several things happened this week, and I was doing this. Oh, good. So this week I read a tweet by a man that I've read for, for 20 years now and respected for 20 years. He's a conservative. And he said some incredibly harsh things about, I'll just tell you what, about, about Rudy Giuliani. They was, that were totally uncalled for. And it was, they were just biting and insensitive. And, and it really was like he showed the emotional maturity of a third grader. And I was just, I thought, where, where's the nobility? And there wasn't there. On the other side, I recently was reading an article this week about uh, Mayor Pete, the new man that's running for uh, president on the Democrat side. Uh, I think it's Buttigieg. I think it's the way he pronounces his name. Is mayor of South Bend, Indiana. Uh, he is of kind of a outspoken and the LGBTQ community. He's a professed homosexual. He has a homosexual marriage. He's incredibly bright, a war veteran. He's a gifted man. 37 years old. So he was speaking on April the 7th at the LGBTQ Victory Fund National Champagne Brunch. And he started criticizing uh, the vice president, Mike Pence. This is what he said, as reported by CNN. Quote, if you've got a problem with who I am, your problem is not with me. Your quarrel, sir, is with my creator, close quote. Talking about Pence believing that, that marriage is for a man and a woman. Um, and, and I just, I read that and my heart broke and I thought, that there's more holes in that statement than in a piece of Swiss cheese. You know, it's like saying, this is the way I am. You got to accept it. No, no we, we walk under the authority of the scripture and we conform to scripture. We don't ask the scripture to conform to our brokenness. And any sexuality outside of marriage is a brokenness. Any, any homosexual, heterosexual is brokenness. But what was interesting to me where I want to go with this is the vice president's response. This is what the vice president said. He was interviewed again by CNN. He said, I've, I've known Mayor Pete for many years. I've considered him a friend. He knows I don't have a problem with him, close quote. 
And three years ago, the mayor was very outspoken about his orientation and was very critical of Governor Pence at that time. They were both in the same state. And Pence was asked, what do you think about Mayor Buttigieg? And he says, I hold Mayor Buttigieg in the highest personal regard. We have a great working relationship. I see him as a dedicated public servant and a patriot, close quote. And I read that, that's nobility. That's nobility. Now, I don't think that'd been the same response if you were talking to Pence's boss, okay? Let's just be honest. But this is nobility. And then I thought about our culture and I thought about what we're exposed to. And you go on any website and, 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 and you've got some of the web, some, some of the headlines are, I always deal with the Kardashians. I don't understand the Kardashians that much. And Bruce or Caitlyn Jenner and then the, the young woman, I always, I always forget her name. Uh, what's her name? Bruce's daughter. She's 19 made millions of dollars. What's her name? Say it again. Kylie? Kylie? Is that right? David, do you know? You have no idea? Okay, anyway. Uh, but, I mean, she's a beautiful young woman, but, but, but you think about that, and you, every time I pick up a website, Millie Cyrus has done something, or Katy Perry, and these are gifted people. But, but there's a brokenness there, and it's, it's just sad to me. And where's the nobility of spirit? Where are the, the examples of, 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 of nobility? And really, just to decide, what I want to know is, has Meghan Markle had her baby yet? You know, really, are they in hiding? I mean, uh, I want to know if William and Harry are at odds. I want to know if Kate is jealous of Meghan. I really want to know about this baby. Has, has she had her baby yet? You, 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 has she? You don't have any idea? It's any day now. And I, I just saw, I mentioned this at our community group the other night. I said, you know, if you guys keep up with Meghan Markle, and everybody's, oh, man. And they were all over this thing about the baby and William and Harry and, and the, the great-granddad can't drive anymore because he's 95 and he gave up driving this past summer and so forth and so on. And I want to say, guys, can I, can I just give you a history lesson? We fought a war called the Revolutionary War to get rid of the royals. And now all we're doing is obsessing about the royals. It's funny to me. I mean, I, I think it's fine. It's, 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 it's harmless. But I'm, I mean, but, but my point is, where do you find nobility of spirit? I'll tell you where you find it. You find it with the people sitting around you. You find it with people who understand their high calling to be a servant of Jesus Christ. You find it with people who go the second and third mile. You find it with people who, when they're criticized, do not respond in the same way. When they're vilified, they're kind. You find among people who get up in the morning and pray, they pray this, Lord, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us because we have received more grace than we can ever, ever begin to imagine. That's where you find nobility of spirit. It's all around you. The third thing about this reward is that it, it, it breathes in us the hope of heaven. There is a great day coming where there will be a reward and we will stand before the living God and by God's grace we can hear well done, good and faithful servant. It is a glorious day and we're heading there really fast. Most of us. I'm reading this stuff and I'm thinking about this, this it's called an occasional sermon by a guy named Jonathan Edwards who I just loved. He died in 1758. I'm just going to read a couple of sentences here. Jonathan Edwards is talking about uh, about well, 
living the Christian life, and he says, the soul that has been wandering before, when it comes to taste of this fountain in Christ, finds in it that which satisfies its desires and cravings, and discovers in it that which needs in order to be, needs no, nothing else to be, to be truly happy. As John 4 says, whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I give him will be in him a spring that brings up to eternal life. Have you tasted the fountain of Christ, the mercy of the cross? It is quite otherwise with the pleasures of ungodly people. There is no true rest in them. They are not enjoyed within requietness, and there's no true peace enjoyed within them. As the Scripture says, the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and they cast up dirt. The pleasures of the ungodly are, are poison to the soul, and they tend to enfeeble it, to consume it and kill it. But the pleasures of the godly feed the soul and do not consume it, and they strengthen and do not weaken it. I just thought, you know, People without Christ, there comes a point in your life where you realize you're operating in the law of diminishing returns no matter what you do physically. You just, just, just down. Your job? Yeah. And he says, well, what do you do? You know, as a young person, you think, well, I'm just, if I just work harder and harder and harder, I'll get there. But when you get midlife and you become despairing and cynical. But for those of us who know Christ, as we experience physical stuff and you know, we say, man, the best is yet to be. Let me tell you something. If you're a follower of Christ, you've come to the cross, this is as bad as it gets. And this is beautiful. If you ever hear this by whatever, this is April in Charleston, South Carolina. It doesn't get a lot better than this. It is a beautiful city and it's a beautiful day. If you are a non-believer and you haven't trusted Christ and you were to die today, this is as good as it gets. Don't, don't lose that hope. Think about heaven. Think about the fact that life is short and that you'll give an account for your life and live with a sense of nobility. That's what this text is saying. Edward says the pleasure of sin Last but a, a little season, and they're like the crackling of thorns under a pot. Whereas the blazing meteors of the night, they appear for a moment and then they vanish. He's, he's right. But Christ gives us hope. So, so live with nobility as people called out by the living God by virtue of the grace of Christ empowered by the Holy Spirit to make a difference to those around you. And thank you for what you do. Let's pray. Lord, we are so um, really encouraged as we read these words that even a cup of cold water given to one of these marginalized ones these culturally insignificant ones done in the name of Christ means that we will not lose our reward. I think of people who just serve, who love, who care, who are not applauded, but in your army, 
they are generals and admirals and leaders. And when we get to heaven, we will be surprised. Thank you for people of nobility all around us this morning. Thank you for that. Uh, help us to be people who live that way in a way that's honoring unto you. Come, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen.